Hello and welcome to Hustlers for a Cause, the podcast for growth-oriented entrepreneurs and executives who aspire to create positive change in the world. Are you in business for more than just profit? Then like and subscribe today and join our channel to become a hustler for a cause. Hello and welcome to Hustlers for a Cause. Today, we're honored to have special guest Zachary Smith. Zach is someone that overcomes the impossible. From overcoming seemingly impossible odds in his youth to hiking alone over 2,650 miles from Mexico to Canada, to now balancing two jobs as both the founder of Wrong Generation and the head of growth at Sickbird Productions, Zach is on a mission to create meaningful change. Zach, it's an honor to have you here today. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Just to kick things off, tell us a little bit more about your background. Yeah, I grew up in Toronto, born and raised. And I feel like, uh, yeah, you kind of hit the the nail on the on the head there with, uh, with regards to a bit of my story. But I wouldn't say I came against uh, impossible odds. Um, you know, I struggled with some mental health issues when I was younger and that leads into a lot of the things that I've now accomplished where I am today. But it's hard to really go back and think about the the origin story now. Yeah. So I guess tell us a little bit more about kind of like your origin, like what happened growing up. I mean, the reason why I ask, right, is like, I feel like the people that have like the hardest path to go through in life end up having the greatest success. And to me, like your story really feels like no exception. So just for like our audience, yeah, if you can just tell a little bit of kind of like, what was that like growing up? What kind of issues did you struggle with? And what was the moment that helped turn it all around for you? Yeah, I think it's interesting that you say that those with the hardest path see the most success, because I've always thought the same. And when I didn't have enough obstacles, I would put obstacles in front of myself to overcome them by choice. So, I mean, some of the obstacles that I had to overcome were dealing with ADHD and depression and anxiety when I was growing up. It was pretty bad in, in, in high school, for sure. And then that led to me being sort of a lost soul, lost kid when I was in university. Ultimately led me to uh, drop out of university after one year. And uh, at that point, the switch had been flipped and I realized I needed to take some time away from the traditional path of where you're supposed to go, you know, go to university, get a job and do all those things that you're supposed to do. You know, I was feeling pretty lost. So I, it happened through a conversation with a mentor of mine at the time. He was an older friend of mine that had gone through similar things himself. After that conversation, I decided it was time to start just taking more responsibility for my life, my future, my my actions. From there, I just started being a much more honest person to myself and to everyone around me, um, which ultimately led to my relationships with my family and, and everyone around me improving. And so I took that year off of school and I worked a job that I knew I was going to have a tough time doing. I, I chose to work construction and it was long, long hours. My first day working as a framer was the hottest day of the year. I, I biked to and from the construction site, so I could barely make it home. I was exhausted, got back into bed, and I thought to myself, there's no way I can do this every day. 
that it was also during that year that uh, I, you know, I did a lot of personal development and, and learning what it was to exert yourself for your goals. And it was during that year that I decided that I wanted to hike the Pacific Crest Trail. Yeah, I find that amazing in so many ways. Like, first, I feel like I've known you for a long time because growing up for me, I was also like lost child kind of like school was interesting to me and I wanted to learn, but it, it wasn't like it was easy, but it just wasn't interesting enough to catch my attention. I had the same thing. I came out of school, had no idea what I wanted to do. So I tried everything. I've actually worked like over 30 jobs. The one that really hooked me was in construction was a paving and seal coating. It's amazing how much like a, a job like that, that kicks your ass every day. And yeah, I was biking to work and back every day too. It's like, oh my God, that's yeah. um, amazing. Yeah. My first day on the job was I biked to and to get there and back. And um, I was pretty out of shape when I started. And the first day, you know, the guys on the <laughs> site, they were, they kind of hazed me a little bit, made me, uh, you know, move piles of wood. And it also incidentally the hottest day of the summer. Um, so it was over 40 degrees Celsius and it was, uh, yeah, it was unbearable. So then I had to bike home and I just laid in bed exhausted um, yep. thought to myself, you know, there's no way that I can get up and do like, how am I going to do this? And, uh, the next day I made a choice to stick with it and, uh, and show up again. And from the movie Rocky, where he doesn't even care about winning, he just cares about going the distance yep. and, uh, and he just gets up and, and, uh, Creed in the final round, like Creed said, him and he, and he can't believe that he's gotten up. Um, and I want to do the same. That's awesome. And um, there was another movie that sparked kind of your inspiration for taking the Pacific Coast Trail on, right? Yeah, I saw the movie Wild uh, during that year and um, just sort of the transformational. I, I ended up reading the book as well. Um, the transformation that she went through during uh, her experience with the trail. I wanted something similar like that for myself and I wanted to set a goal that was so big that it was, you know, unbelievable or, or sort of un, unattainable. And then I knew that throughout the journey, um, I would be able to become the person that could do it. That's awesome. And you're not like, before you did that, you were not really a hiker and not really like, like what kind of experience did you have going into that? And what kind of prep did you do beforehand? You know, I had done some canoe trips uh, at camp growing up and I thought that that would prepare me like I had spent enough time outdoors that I you know I wasn't afraid of sleeping in the woods but um there's a very canoe all day versus uh up and down mountains all day with a 50 pound pack on your on your back um and not to mention doing it for for four and a half months is by no stretch of the imagination <laughs> a light task <laughs> the way that works did you do like seven days on or were you do like five days walking and then like a break for a day or two or something or so how do you how do you pace yourself so yeah you, you asked uh, how I prepared I actually I so I knew that I was going to lose a lot of weight because uh, it's just impossible to to gain weight on the trail um, you know you're just burning thousand calories a day and the most you can possibly carry to eat is like 2,000 calories a day so you're always in a calorie deficit so I knew that I was going to lose weight um, so I actually gained weight it was my last year of university I just ate and, you know, uh, <laughs> lived the, the college lifestyle. So gained a few pounds and then ended up losing 23. So 
Yeah, that was how I prepared. But to, to answer your question, I would usually do about anywhere between three to five days at the beginning. And then near the end, I actually only took uh, for the last two and a half months, I only took about two days off. So every day was, uh, was, was momentum forward. That's really awesome and inspirational. And uh, I mean, even the reason, can you tell us a little bit about the reason why you did it? And yeah, I feel like a lot of people when they graduate university, most people decide to go on some sort of grad trip where they go to Southeast Asia and maybe get drunk for a couple months or a few weeks. And I, I just kind of wanted to do something that was different, um, a little bit more meaningful, a big challenge that I could put on my life resume that would something that I could be proud of. It was during that year off I took during university when I realized that both of my grandparents had fought in a war by the time that they were my age. And I had nothing really to show for, start to build my legacy for my grandkids to say, you know, when my grandfather was 23 years old, he hiked from Mexico to Canada. Um, something that was, you know, that would start to build the legacy. Yeah, it's awesome. And you did it for more than just your own reasons too, right? Like there was the whole connection too with there's an organization up there by you in Toronto, right? That works with other kids that are depressed and you raised a pretty good amount of money for them, right? Yeah. So I, I you know, I, it was, it was during my year of planning uh, when I decided uh, people run marathons and raise thousands of dollars to run 26 miles where I was going to be doing about a marathon a day for an entire summer. I may as well do it for not just myself, but for, for the benefit of others as well. Um, so I decided to raise money and fundraise for a charity called Youth Assisting Youth. And they're, they're a local charity here based in uh, Toronto that is uh, youth mentorship and mental health. So they're sort of like the, the big brothers and sisters uh, program, but for kids that have mental health diagnosis or, you know, kids that are a little bit more difficult to deal with and they can't get matched through the big brothers and sisters, they get referred over to youth assisting youth. So the program trains their mentors and how, and how to deal with, uh, with, with kids that are in pretty, pretty rough situations. And the outcome is, is incredible. They're able to increase their high school graduation rate. These kids are at, at risk of not graduating high school. They're able to increase their high school graduation rate to uh, somewhere in the high 80 percent, 80s, and post-secondary application and and acceptance as well, um, which is, which is pretty great to see. Yeah. And and I can only imagine like for you, I mean, being someone that came over being depressed when you get on the Hill and you do that every day, you probably spend a lot of time alone. I feel like for a lot of people that I know that have been in depressed places, being alone is sometimes one of the hardest things they can do. So how did you overcome that mental challenge when you were on that trek? Yeah, and it, and it certainly was a challenge, although it taught me a lot about myself. Um, it taught me a lot about, you know, being, being with myself and being comfortable being by myself. I think that a lot of people when they're in a dis- depressive state can be avoidant of being alone, which is in the short term helpful at the time, but in the long term isn't really helpful. So I decided to sort of face that down head first by spending so much time with just myself uh, alone in my head and, and my own thoughts. Yeah. Were there ever times you felt like giving up? So I never actually considered giving up. I thought about it many times, uh, but I never actually <laughs> considered 
uh, the possibility of giving up. My mindset was never, I can't do this. Just to give everyone some context, like I first heard about what you did. I looked at it a little bit and then I saw that it was, you know, 2,650 miles, which to me was like, okay, that's a lot. I have no idea how much, how much time that takes. It took you months to do it. Then I looked a little deeper at it, realized it's a 489,000 foot elevation gain that you did, which is equivalent to going to Mount Everest 16 times yeah. and takes months. So it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's like for, when it comes uh, to doing, for, definitely overdoing. It's awesome. Yeah. For, for my, my friends here in Toronto, I, I put it into perspective by saying, you know, I was doing CN Tower two and a half times. <laughs> awesome what were like the difficult technical challenges that you had to overcome on that trail yeah so balancing the the amount of food that you need with what you can actually physically carry um because the more food you pack out of town the heavier your pack is the slower you are the more energy you burn finding that right balance between foods that are light but high in calories and that you know that was something that was a big adjustment at the beginning i always carried way too much food um, but the perfect carry is great when you you arrive into your next town, you plan out everything perfectly that when you get to the next town, you have nothing left but garbage in your pack. Yeah. And what about on the trail? Were there um, certain points that were especially difficult, like big river crossings and scaling mountains and anything? Yeah. During the High Sierra Mountain Range in California, we spent a lot of time up above 10,000 feet going up and up and over mountain passes pretty much every morning at, or, you know, get up around three, four in the morning when the snow is still frozen uh, to climb over the mountain pass. And then on the way back, on the way down, the sun would hit the peak and it would get really slush and uh, the rivers would start to overflow. And it made for some pretty dangerous river crossings. Um, every summer, there's always a few hikers in the Sierra that that uh, get swept away in rivers and don't make it out, unfortunately. Oh, wow. So, I mean, in terms of the journey itself, I know you, you took the journey alone, but as you go, were there like a lot of other hikers on the trail? Did you end up meeting a lot of people? And are you in contact with any of them still today? Yeah, it's sort of a bit of a pil pilgrimage. Um, so there's, you know, a group of hikers that you see you run into familiar faces because the trail sort of funnels into certain areas where, um, you know, you, you get to a town, you'll see people in town, uh, but then you could get back out on the trail and not see them until the next town, even uh, if you're going at similar paces. But yeah, there were, there were a number of people that I, I spent a fair amount of time with. Um, there one, one in particular that I spent the majority of, of the time with was uh, a friend of mine, who I'm still in contact with, uh, who lives in the Czech Republic named Peter. I, I'm sure that a trip like that lets you learn many lessons. Are there lessons that you feel like you've taken away from that trip that you still live today? Yeah, I, I would say the, the biggest lesson that I learned that I still try to carry through into my life every day is that patience is a muscle that really it needs to be exercised in order to work effectively. You know, when you're out there in the wilderness and you can't control you, you have very little control over your environment. You only have control over the things that you can control. You can't control the weather. You can't control the, the terrain. You can't control many things. So you have to just focus on the things that you can control and, and not worry about the things that you can't. And so that taught me a lot of patience and, uh, and that patience still 
it's not easy still today, mm-hmm. but it's, uh, I'm a lot more cognizant of, of practicing patience. Do you practice in other ways too, or do you practice like mindfulness and other kinds of activities to like help you always stay connected to patients and overcome when you hit like big roadblocks, like, especially now, I guess, running two jobs, like it's gotta be tough, right? Cause you're always in an urgent state. Plus you need to remember to remain patient to get the results you're after. Yeah. I was a big fan of journaling. Uh, when I was on the trail, I journaled religiously every day or every, every night before I would go to bed. And um, that kind of fell off after I, uh, after I got back and I've picked it back up a couple times uh, for some shorter stretches, but I'd like to get more into that. That's definitely something I want to do more. Let's talk a little bit more about how you're uh, saving unsalvageable records and what you're doing at a uh, wrong generation. So can you tell us just a little bit about what wrong generation is and kind of where the inspiration for it came from? Yeah. So wrong generation is my, my side business that I run. Um, it's an e-commerce website where I'm saving vinyl records from landfill by upcycling them into handcrafted housewares. So I source my records from a local record shop. Um, they've got a ton of uh, scratched and unusable records that are just sitting waiting to go in the garbage. And uh, they're able to be repurposed into, I make them into bowls, uh, bookends and clocks right now, but hopefully some, some other products uh, will be on the line uh, in the near future. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, I saw the clock and I, it's beautiful. I guess when I think about the name, can you tell me a little bit more? Like I hear wrong generation and I, it immediately takes me back to like my generation and is that where the inspiration came from or was it something else? Yeah, the, the inspiration for the name uh, comes from, you know, that feeling of nostalgia that you feel uh, when you see videos or, or listen to music from the hippie generation. And it, it just sort of makes you feel displaced a little bit and uh, nostalgic, like as if you were born in the wrong generation. Yeah, there's, awesome. there's a lot of times where where I kind of wish that I lived in an, in an era that didn't have as much technology that was dragging my attention away, feeling, you know, as the most, we were the most connected we've ever been, yet we still feel so disconnected. You know, I didn't live in the sixties and so I can't actually speak from experience, um, <laughs> but from what I, what I understand from the music and from the, the art and the, the movies and, and everything, the culture from that time period, um, just seems so connected. Are you uh, also a uh, musician of any kind? I, I I played some instruments growing up, but I'm definitely not a not a mus- musician. Yeah, because I feel like a lot of times the people that I talk to that feel more connected to like historical music like that, they always tend to be like guitar players or something else, and they just like felt this like strong inspiration and connection to like a yeah specific artists. Is there are there certain artists or anything that you would say are like your biggest influence in terms of just like a, it just like styles of music that you listen to? Yeah, I love, uh, I love Fleetwood Mac. I'm more into like in the current day, I'm more into uh, like house music and electronic music. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's a, an artist on SoundCloud that does exclusively Fleetwood Mac remixes. Um, so it's the perfect blend of wow. my two favorite things. <laughs> awesome so the organization itself is still really young right yeah uh so i launched uh just at the end of december near christmas time 
fortunately I was able to uh, gain a lot of traction on TikTok um, right off the bat. So that sort of skyrocketed uh, my growth immediately and mm-hmm. caught, uh, caught me with my pants down a little bit. I <laughs> had, to, had to pick up the pieces and, and figure out how I was going to do everything organizationally since it's just me running this and I, I anticipated it to do well, but not as well as it did at the beginning. Um, so now I've, it was a little bit exhausting at the, at the beginning. So I, I pumped the brakes a little bit and, and devoted a little less time to it. Um, but now I'm, now I'm starting to rethink of how I can start to go at it from a more strategic lens and uh, mm-hmm. start to approach it in, in a more uh, manageable and predictable growth strategy. So where's the biggest challenge for you there? Is it the actual growth side and like acquisition of customers and marketing, or is it the supply side or is it the actual like production or yeah, something so, else altogether? So because I do everything myself, that means I have to go pick up the inventory from the local shop, have to or- organize all the ordering of the supplies that go, everything that goes into it. Um, and then I have to, you know, hand craft piece, bring them over to the shipping station while also worrying about the growth and and the marketing content that needs to be put out, um, dealing with customer support. I mean, there's there's so many facets to an e-commerce business that uh, can be really time consuming. So when those first few videos blew up on TikTok and I, I got a, about 150,000 views on, on each of them, uh, more sales than I was able to keep up with. Um, so I was, up until three o'clock in the morning, packaging boxes. Yeah, I'd like to get back to a place where I it's a little bit more manageable, somewhere in between slow and high paced, um, <laughs> somewhere in the middle of like slow, steady, predictable growth. I'm curious, like what you do there to control growth. Are there like ideas that you have that help you? Because like, especially if something goes viral, right? You can't really help that. So what are ways and tactics that you can apply? Yeah, so having having a bit more framework around the production process and the packaging process, definitely that was something that I had to learn by doing, I guess. Before you get an influx of, of customers, you, you can't, you won't know what that process is going to look like. Um, but now I sort of have a bit, bit of a better understanding of the framework and the tools that I need to be a little bit more efficient. Um, so I've got a new sort of campaign that I'm going to be trying out on TikTok, um, hopefully within the next little while. But TikTok, TikTok can be finicky. Like you, you can create a video that you absolutely love. You, TikTok shows it to 100 people. And then you can create a video mindlessly that you barely put any effort into it. And all of a sudden you're getting hundreds of thousands of views on it. Um, oh, wow. So it can be it can be really really frustrating when you put a lot of effort into it and it doesn't do well, which has been sort of a, a bit of a had to deal with as well. Yeah, have you learned anything specific to like marketing on TikTok as a channel? Like that you have to consider. I guess do you do things more like lower budget and create more volume, or are there other things that you can do to try to like help guarantee the success and the reach that you want? Yeah, I haven't. Uh, I thought I had it figured out because the first few videos that went viral, I planned for them to go viral. I did a fair amount of production on them and, and planned out the script and planned out the storyline and storyboarded it. And they ended up doing well. And then the next one that I did like that did not 
perform at all and wasn't able to to get it past my my few hundred like get it past just being seen by a few hundred people which was was a video that i really liked so yeah i haven't cracked the code on that yet there, there's tons of information around how to go viral because on everybody wants so you have a lot of gurus on tiktok that are trying to tell you what will make you go viral but at the end of the day i don't think even they really i come from like an seo background right and there's a lot of people who are experts in social media and all these places but at the end of the day the definition of the word expert means that you know your field right and you look at something like search right or tiktok these are companies that control an algorithm that you're trying to build something to the algorithm's wins right that by definition means that you can never you can never be an expert because the field itself is changing so much because the algorithms are changing you know everyone can call themselves an expert right but uh, tomorrow, something could be fundamentally different that shakes up the whole experience, right? So the same thing with YouTube too. Absolutely. And uh, I think when I started TikTok, the most important things were comments, likes, and shares. And now I think the most important thing is watch time. And it doesn't matter about the engagement on the video. The more, more important thing is how long people watch your video. Mm-hmm. Is TikTok moving to, so like, and this is a channel I'm not too much on right now, but is TikTok moving then to longer videos? Like a YouTube kind of made that switch? I'm not sure if that's on their roadmap. It's not something that they've been vocal about. Yeah. The, no the great thing about TikTok is that, you know, I haven't spent a dollar on paid marketing. Um, I've only done TikTok, which if I were to pay for Facebook ads, to get hundreds of thousands of views and the hundreds of thousands of engagement that I've gotten on my posts that is, that is actually converted into sales. Mm. Um, I would have had to pay a pretty penny on, uh, on Facebook, for example, or any other uh, digital app platform. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't have to pay anything for my TikToks, and it's the, it's probably the best marketing platform for that if for for just starting out if you're not looking to invest in in manageable paid growth is the place to be for sure